You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. So that we may build grand works and thus secure our legacies. <laughs> I'm Marshall Ryan Moresco. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alexandra Rowland, and this is episode 18, Wonders and Monuments. Marshall Ryan Maresca, I heard some gossip that you have. Would you like to share the gossip with our dear listeners? Is it gossip or is it news? I mean, do we do we distinguish? What, I mean, what yeah. is the I, difference between gossip and news? <laughs> perception, news all perception. Facts. Like gossip would be like I've got like a thing you know in the works that I can't talk about yet, mm. and they go hint, hint, hint. But no, this is a real thing. So I've what is the truth? Out. The, the truth is, I've got a book that's <laughs> dropping on February 26th or whatever that Tuesday is. 25th? 25th. 25th, it's yeah. It's the 25th. Because my birthday is, is that Thursday. Oh, happy yeah. birthday. Yay! Happy birthday. Okay. But anyway, so my next book, The Fenmere Job, which is the 11th of all Jesus. the Meridane novels and the third of the Streets of Meridane subseries, is coming out on February 25th, and it's going to be lots of fun, so please pre-order because, like, I have a mortgage and a son in college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know how you write books so fast, but our dear listeners should definitely go buy that book uh, because it sounds rad. It's, it's, it's a lot. I had a lot of fun writing. Like, you know, when you, when you're, when you're writing a book, you always reach that point where it's like, okay, it all, I've got all the rest of it figured out. And it's just a matter of like getting it out of my fingers. That happened with this book earlier in like the word count than ever before. Mm. And then it just like flew from there. It was a a lovely, lovely, like, and I've haven't had an experience that lovely in quite some, you know, before that. And so this is a fun one, and I had a lot of fun. It's really weird how every book that you write is different from every other book that you write. Like, in terms of the experience, like, it's just a completely different experience every single time. Yeah. Weird, weird stuff, books. It's like kids. Like, every kid that you have, like, requires a slightly different parenting style, right? Or so I hear. I'm the one on the podcast who doesn't have kids. (laughs) Though I, I mean... Probably with the people who have, say, 11 or 12 children. (laughs) It's another. You probably probably loop back around at some point, right? (laughs) You go back to being that complete neurosis over the last one or so. I don't know. (laughs) I only had the one child, but yet I've got 12 books so far, and I'm working on my 13th right now. Good Lord. Good Lord. All right, well, let's have an episode so we don't have have to talk about this incredible monument of Marshall writing 13 books in like five minutes. That was a good It, it actually, hours. if you stack them on top of each other, it would almost make a wonder or a monument. The sheer it number of them. Would. Incredible. Why don't we have an episode about that? That sounds interesting. <laughs> Though we should probably remind our dear, beautiful, wonderful listeners that we love and cherish so much that we are in fact eligible for the best fan cast, Hugo, and if they like us, they should consider us for that. And speaking of wonders. Speaking of wonders, <laughs> that would be a wonder. Especially, I don't know if, I, have I said this on air yet before? I know I've put it on Twitter, but I don't think I've put it on air yet. About what? That if we, if we get oh. nominated, 
<laughs> yes. Keep going. Keep going. If, if we, we get nominated, what happens? Pledge to you, dear listeners, this is a serious pledge. If we get nominated, then what I wear to the Hugo ceremony will be picked out by my dear co-hosts. They will have free reign to make me their living doll. Yes. You want this. Yes. And we yes. have ideas. We have so many ideas. Happen. We're talking high-heeled shoes and knee breeches and tricorn hats and lots of ostrich feathers, dear listeners. We're talking brocade waistcoats. The whole thing. The whole thing. And I am down. I, that, God bless I, you. I am committed to this. So make make me do this. Listeners. Everyone's make a winner. We all it's win. It's true. We all win. Well, anyway, please make this happen so that I can dress. Can I dress you up anyway, even if we don't get nominated? Because I feel I feel like at this point we've hyped it up so much. I. I, I feel like we at least have to have some sort of threshold broached to, to Is it a threat? To to Is it a threat? Like, if if we don't get nominated, I'm going to dress Marshall up and it's going to be real bad. <laughs> anyway. I don't think we have to do that. I don't, think, I don't think we do. A joke. A, a small joke. Anyway, dear listeners, yes, if you are so kind as to consider us for best fan cast... Joking aside, we really would be flattered and honored to be considered. Uh, so, anyway, wonders, monuments. Wonders and monuments. So, I, I thought for fun, before we dive into our second world world building, do you have any favorite natural wonders or man-made monuments or ancient wonders or anything that, that pop out to you? Well, I, I in thinking about this, I did do a bit of cursory research about what, like, the seven, one, the seven wonders of the ancient world and the seven wonders of the natural world, because these are things that nobody actually agrees on mm-hmm. what they actually mm-hmm. are, and then there's 6,000 different lists, but, but there are some that are pretty standard for most of them, and though for the wonders of the ancient world, I really, I really got to dig the lighthouse of Alexandria. Oh, yeah. Just because it's a lighthouse, and it's huge, and, like... <laughs> How can you not love that? Yeah. It's it's pretty and it's practical. Yeah. And like the Lighthouse of Alexandria is one that always fascinates me because, you know, they talk about it being this like huge structure and and you can see it for miles and miles and miles. And in reality, it was probably not above like four stories tall. <laughs> right? Like, do we actually know how tall it was? I think. I'm not looking at the information right now, but, like, it actually lasted longer than most of the other. It fell down because of an earthquake, yeah. but, like, the remnants of it are still there. So, it, as far as I know, it actually was pretty tall. Like, yeah, surely we someone must have a, measured it We probably it in got an exaggerated world. idea of, like, what, say, the Colossus of Rhodes yeah. was. Mm-hmm. That's probably been exaggerated. But this, I think, like, lives up to the hype, from what I understand. Yeah. Which has been estimated, I'm reading the Wikipedia page right now, Uh, it says which has been estimated to be at least 100 meters, 330 feet in overall height, which is not bad for the ancient world, honestly. No. No, no. That's pretty good. Uh, I can see how that would be very impressive back in the day, and still probably today a little bit. Uh, Anyway, 
Uh, my favorite, I was going to say the Library of Alexandria, if that counts as a wonder of the world, which I think it I think it does. does. I think I it think, does. I think it's generally it included on most of the lists. Um, I was always fascinated by the Hanging Gardens of Babylon when I was a kid, too, because I didn't know what really they meant by hanging gardens. Like, yes. how were they hanging? Um, I was going to say the, the exact same thing, that I was always like, it sounds so mystical and magical, and I don't get it. Because the only thing that I imagined, like, with a hanging garden were, like, my mom's hanging baskets yes. that she would put on the front porch. <laughs> right. I'm like, well, that's not impressive at all. From what I understand, and there's actually some debate whether the hanging gardens were actually real or just a legend that sort of got built up, because mm. there's not... There's not a lot of actual physical evidence that was, but from what I understand, it was a whole thing where, like, like the plants were in raised things that then, like, dropped down like a pyramid, almost, yeah. of each one at the next level. So it then created, like, a pyramid cascade of plants yeah. or something like yeah. that. Which and is way cooler than my mom's hanging baskets. Yeah. Yes. And there was a whole thing about, like, how the mechanisms that they had to pump water all the way up to the top, which mm. was honestly the real Ooh. wonder of that part. Right. Is, That's like, true. You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in terms of natural wonders, uh, you know one that you always think is going to be overhyped and actually is not overhyped? The Grand Canyon. Have you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon? I have not I have done not. the Grand Canyon. Okay, at all yet. so you I... know how you see postcards of the Grand Canyon and you're like, oh, that looks really big. When you go to the Grand Canyon, and everyone's like, oh my god, the Grand Canyon. You actually go to the Grand Canyon and you're like, holy fuck, that's really <laughs> fucking big. So, totally not overhyped. If you get a chance, definitely go visit it. Um, it genuinely is a wonder of the world. I stood there and looked at it and was almost overcome with vertigo and fell off the edge a couple times because of just how sheerly big it is. So, yeah. Rowena, what are your favorites? So, I it's funny that you mentioned the Colossus of Rhodes because that one that one just cracks me up because it's really awkward if you think about it. There's yeah. this giant dude straddling the entrance to a harbor. And it's in a skirt. Yes. In a skirt, right. <laughs> Whose idea was this? It's very awkward. Um, but one thing I really love about it is then how um, we we kind of did a fun riff on it with the Statue of Liberty that that was like the new Colossus and it's kind of an inversion in a lot of ways of the original kind of creepy man spreading colossus that it's a woman and it's representing something entirely different than than the original colossus does so i i kind of like how we take like original touchstone wonders and then use them in our own cultures to kind of represent new things and different things do you think the eiffel tower is kind of a re-representation of the lighthouse of alexandria i certainly think it qualifies as a wonder of the quote-unquote modern world yeah. if we like think of modernity as starting in the 19th century mm. then yeah i think it's it's got that sort of same purpose and it's sort of this that is the fascinating thing of like why we wanted to talk about this in this episode is these are things that like every culture does and a lot of times it serves no purpose other than look at this cool thing we did and it, like, takes up valuable real estate in the middle of the city or, or otherwise. Like, I mean, the Eiffel Tower serves no function other than look at this cool thing that we did. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was, I mean, there was some contention over whether they were going to leave it, too, right? Like, it was built for right. um, a World's Fair, if I'm remembering correctly. I so. And then it was, like, 
one of the expositions, then it was like, well, we aren't really going to leave this here, right? So there's kind of an interesting, I think, question of are wonders and monuments intentional or do they just kind of happen sometimes that they become important over time? Yeah, I mean, and there's some wonders which clearly originally had a purpose of some sort, and that purpose has kind of been lost or forgotten. Like the um, Stonehenge is a great example. What are those those big, big uh, rock drawings on the side of a mountain? And I want to say South America somewhere, Chile. They're like huge, huge drawings on the side of a mountain, and you can't even really see them without an airplane. Oh. Is it the Nazca lines? Yeah. That, would you? I think yes. so. Yeah, and it's like if you are in a plane, it's these gorgeous pictures. Right. And how did they? <laughs> how did you do this? And why did you do this? And why? And did you actually did you like secretly have some kind of technology where you could see and enjoy these? Because when you're standing on the ground, like it's just rocks around you. So like, yeah. I want to know so much more about this. So I have a feeling that we're probably going to spend most of our time today on man-made monuments just because yeah. we're writing fantasy and talking about people. But I thought we could like touch on natural monuments and wonders for a minute um, just because like I feel like they're kind of underappreciated mm-hmm. in writing. Yeah. Um, just because like they're kind of there. No one built them. So maybe there's something less exciting. But I think it can be a really interesting way to kind of build um, geography and climate and terrain like into your world by mentioning what's cool about an area of your world. Yeah. Uh, in my book, uh, part of the... <laughs> um, I have a list of, like, the seven natural wonders of the world, and I haven't mentioned any of them yet because none of them are near where my books have taken place. Do we necessarily do an in my book if it's in the world but hasn't shown up in the book? I, well, I think we have to. I think we have to because it's still like in my work and I'm still like sort of self-deprecating myself for talking about myself. Because right. uh, that's what the essence of in my book is about. That's true. It's to show that I'm not taking myself too seriously. Exactly. So it is a great way to just build in extra flavor. I, I totally agree with you, Rowena, and to like bring the, the interaction with the natural world back into it because you have this, this great huge thing that, like you said, no one made, but we still have to interact with it in some way. And we still probably have ideas of how it got there or uh, folkloric or religious beliefs about it. Yeah, and I think that the way that a culture interacts with a natural wonder is kind of interesting too. Like I was just watching a documentary the other day about Everest and mm-hmm. actually a lot of the local guides who like clear the way up to the summit, it's part of their belief system that they don't go on the summit. Like that's not a place that you go. It's considered sacrilegious to actually step on the summit of Everest. So it's this weird, like Westerners come and climb Everest. Local people are like, yeah, no, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> so yeah. like, how do you approach like, how do you see something? How do you consider yourself interacting with it um, is a kind of fun place to play. Man, that's like really just a perfect encapsulation of like white bullshit, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like the, the fucking hubris of looking at the tallest mountain in the world and saying, I'm gonna step on it. Did you see last year like, because there's only a, a small window in which you can actually summit mm-hmm. yeah. because of, you know, like, weather conditions. And because of that, so many people last year had, like, signed up to do it. There was literally 
a line. Lord, yes, I did see that. Like Ugh. to get up to get up to the top of Everest, which Jesus Christ. I mean, and I can like, I can understand the sort of like wow the spectacle of going, but at the same time, when it's just become a tourist attraction, a tourist attraction. Yeah. There's something I know I've never been, but my parents went to Victoria Falls, and they went. You know, it's a tourist attraction, but it's also like. Like, it holds up in terms of, like, oh, my God, this is an amazing, gorgeous thing yeah. of of nature. In my book, I haven't thought too much about... Yeah, I, I had to do no, it. No, 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 you have to do it. It's just funny every time we do it. It's just funny every time. Yeah, I know. And that one was, That's like... That's why I do it. Just that particular way do... you said it was just, like, so sort of, like, humdrum, like, in my book. <laughs> so, it won't stop again, this is the thing that's... In the world, but I haven't, you know, it hasn't shown up in any of the books because it's not in the part of the world that the books are in. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the ones that I've clearly designated, because when I first drew the map, I like drew the border between two countries someplace and then had a river in a different place. I was like, why is the border there? And then I said, the border is there because there's an enormous cliff face yeah. right there. And yeah, so, buddy. I just went like. Yeah, this is a good place to stop, right here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we don't need to go any further. And then... In my book, so the I came up with a also a natural wonder for a similar reason, because I needed to have dramatically different climate on one side of the continent versus immediately next to those countries. And I needed... I, I also had a very sharp culture um, div dividing line. So I was like, okay, there needs to be some kind of absolutely impassable wall between this part of the continent and this part of the continent to explain why they are so different in climate, in terms of uh, racial demographics, in terms of culture, in terms of everything. So there's like an, there's just a wall. There's just a fucking wall um, of mountains that's absolutely <laughs> impassable and probably the height of Mount Everest. And there's a magical reason why it's there. Um, which ties into the magic system in my book. I was very proud of it. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, you can do also, you can use them for reasons and use them as tools to, to help organize your, your map, which is a great thing. The other fun thing you can do with secondary world building is make something magical be that natural wonder. Mm -hmm. I have a thing in my book, um, again, in a part of the world that we've never actually gone to in the stories, where there is like clockwork every year because magic works really weird in that particular part of the world there is a storm this massive enormous like destroy everything storm that happens once a year every year and like the whole culture is designed to like bunker down when this happens sort of like the ancient egyptians with the flood yeah because they knew it was coming because right. it would come every time except there would usually be like one or two guys every year who, out of, like, macho bullshit, would, like, be like, I'm going to ride the storm and stand out on the top of the, of the hill. Because, the of course, there are. Right. Because, of course, there are. They also climb Everest, don't they? they all, these are the <laughs> same guys who climb Everest. But so a lot of their culture is based around that macho bullshit of, of yeah, the storm's coming. I'm going to do it this year yeah. and things like that. So Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, what, let's talk about some of the reasons why people build monuments and wonders. So, like, where do they come from if they don't just exist in your world? Someone right. had to have made them. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting how many, um, especially for a pretty new country like America, I mean, 
every town you go to has their statue somewhere in the middle of that guy who founded it or that building with the historical plaque on it. Like history is something that we kind of create in a lot of ways through Mm -hmm. monuments. And so I think that that's definitely a spot in, in world building that you can have that element of, you know, we talked last week about, you know, big age history and what is that historical narrative. And in a lot of ways, monuments reflect that narrative, but they also kind of help to create it. Yeah. I mean, with America, it's a really interesting situation, too, because you have the colonists and you have them arriving at this new, quote unquote, heavy, heavy, quote unquote, undiscovered land. Um, (laughs) Please take those as irony quotes. Um, And seeing it, even though it wasn't, even though there were like people already living here, the colonists saw it kind of as a blank slate that they could impose their own stories onto. And so I think that's part of it because like back in the old country, you have thousands and thousands of years of history and monuments and there's like ruined castles. You can't swing a cat without hitting three castles. And in America, people were like, oh, we can just like start a clean slate and and build something fresh and come up with stuff. And so I think that's part of the reason why we're so obsessed with having these, even though we're such a new country in comparison to some of the rest of the world, like the the white colonists definitely like imposed their own view of the world and their own kind of propaganda onto the landscape. Definitely. And I think also, like, every little town wants to be special in some way. So how do you define yourself geographically? Well, if there's nothing interesting around in terms of nature, if you don't have anything economically, that's really just you are the silk manufacturing whatever of this area. Well, you kind of latch onto something and you, you... just market the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. And like like one that kind of cracks me up, and I actually didn't realize it about my town until I like saw the little marker that someone had had placed is that like back in um, like prohibition gangster era, John Dillinger was shot during a bank robbery in mm-hmm. our downtown. And like this was something that at some point someone was like, well, that's special. That's something that we can like latch onto is John Dillinger was shot right here. Let's put up a plaque. <laughs> Amazing. Let's memorialize this moment. And it's and the facade is still there, the bank that he was shot at, even though it's been like, you know, different businesses since then. And mm. of course, you know, the little old lady historical society would go nuts if you tried to change that facade for any reason. So it's kind of funny, like we tell a story about where we are by putting up some kind of plaque or yeah. monument or yeah. statue. You know what we should have called this episode now that we are 24 minutes into the episode? <laughs> And I have just now thought of the best title. We should have called it, If You Build It, They Will Come. It would have been <laughs> yes, a great title. we should have. Well, too late now. Too late. Yeah. You know, I think, too, before we kind of move on from history, I think that one thing that's really important to remember is that historical monuments reflect not only the history that they're portraying, but the time period in which they are put up. So I think mm. that that's also to play with with world building is someone decided to put up a statue of good King Ferdinand or whatever, but they put it up 500 years after he died. Well, what does that say about that moment in which it's put up? Like, mm. that's that's kind of something to juggle yeah, like as well. Yeah, like you're, you're sort of um, manifesting 
in a concrete way. Haha, <laughs> concrete, get it? Yeah. Because that's what monuments yeah. are made of. Um, a little a little joke there for you, a little architecture joke. Um, you're manifesting this um, concrete nostalgia for that era of history, right? Where you're saying, oh, good King Ferdinand, things were better in those days. We'll put, a, put up a statue to him 500 years after the fact, even though literally no one cares and it doesn't impact their lives. Uh, we're going to try to sort of it's like magic in a way. It's like a bit of witchcraft trying to bring that piece of, of history and nostalgia back and make it real. I mean, that's why we have Confederate soldier monuments. Also that. Most of them. Yeah. Also the incredibly that, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oof. <laughs> because it, it is literally that of like trying to reclaim something that you shouldn't have tried to reclaim. But yet, there it is. Right. And, and it's weaponized nostalgia is what it is. And it's, yeah. 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 It, uh, but and it creates but a still thing. something and something to juggle when you're creating what is important in a world is that it's not just what was important 500 years ago 50 years ago whatever it's how you interpret that importance mm -hmm. in a moment yeah and thus you get people who for some reason think fondly of a traitorous nation that lasted for four <laughs> years <laughs> great joy wonder <laughs> uh, yeah. but then also but that is because of the use of monuments and weaponized nostalgia. And you can use that sort of thing in your world building right. in terms of that monuments are a form of propaganda. Yes. Yeah. And then and then the propaganda, the, the very powerful action that it can be to tear down that monument as a yes. as a deliberate way of literally dismantling that piece of propaganda or yeah. fighting back against it. Or challenging it in um, what was it the um, the Wall Street Bull oh, that yeah. there was the the little girl placed right in front of it challenging it like yes. the way that that monuments can be changed over time to reflect changing ethics or mores um, I think is kind of cool too. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know when we're saying monuments, I know most of the time we're thinking about things like the Washington Monument, the Eiffel Tower, the big splashy things but it can be as simple as a statue or a plaque or just naming a street like what you name mm -hmm. the streets in your world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. says so much about like i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go too deep into it in, in the in the in my book but the what i name streets all throughout the city of meridane it comes from different idea of like in the history what was going on there before yeah. and all that like in the, in the Aventil neighborhood, all the streets are flowers because that neighborhood used to be hundreds of years ago a lord's estate, and so his wife was known for her gardens. And so, God, then, that's cool. When it became God. part of the city, <laughs> the street names are all flower names. Like I make a lot of fun of you for having a longer history world building <laughs> document than anyone I have ever known, Marshall Ryan Moresca. But also, goddamn, that's cool. Well, then it's it's cool too because that like just knowing that I as a reader would assume that there is there's still some cultural significance here to that like you've held on to that it matters in some way, or else someone would have got mad and changed the name like so it's kind right. of a fun way to play with cultural significance too like why why do we pick the things that we pick to commemorate like we talked to, we talked a lot about people and kind of heroes or statues that we put up but I mean yeah. there are a lot of other ways that that we create monuments to things that are important to us yeah um, lots of religious monuments mm -hmm. yes um 
I think, let's see. I mean, that's what we presume Stonehenge was. Right. It was a religious monument of some sort. Right. Uh, or the Parthenon. Or, mm-hmm. um, uh, what else? I mean, all of the basilicas and churches oh, and yeah, grottos all kind of throughout, you know, yeah. Europe that are just absolute marvels of architecture and design for the time. And yeah. And yeah. And the purpose was to have mass. And like you look at, I'm thinking right now of the burning of Notre Dame last year and how hugely impactful that was to so many people across the globe. And then sort of the second wave of people reacting to people's reactions. So you had that wave of grief and then you had that wave of criticism of the grief saying like, Mm -hmm. you should not be upholding this. Like the Catholic Church has done all of these terrible things for hundreds and hundreds of years, like, we shouldn't be um, honoring it quite like this. We shouldn't be grieving it like this. Except you can grieve a thing just because it's beautiful and it's a, a beautiful part of the world, right? So it's a complex yeah. issue. Um, or it, it, it meant something to you. I think that everyone who had been to Paris and stood in front of Notre Dame had some reason that they were connected to it right like they they had a memory or a time of their life that was important so I think there's kind of that to play with too like what Mm -hmm. how do you as an individual not just how do you as a culture approach a monument but how do you as an individual approach a monument and it might have nothing to do with what it was built for what it was used for yes absolutely I was going to say, in the case of Notre Dame, it also has this weird history where it had already fallen into complete disrepair. And then Victor Hugo is like, we should be paying more attention to Notre <laughs> this Dame. This is a great monument. This is a great monument that we have. And so I'm going to write a book about Notre Dame, to, basically as propaganda yeah. to get everybody to pay attention to it again. It's a great PR so campaign. So we rebuild it again. It was a PR campaign. Yeah. He started the Notre Dame fandom. Um, yeah. He did. <laughs> And here we are. (laughs) And here we are talking about it on a podcast. (laughs) Yes. So besides religious monuments and monuments to people, I think specifically, it's usually warriors, right? Warriors or politicians that we build monuments to when that's people. Almost always. Yeah. And a lot of times those two intermingle. Yeah, those are often the same thing, especially historically, those are often the same thing. Yeah, the only major category I can think of that would be different are um, religious, like religious iconography. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of starts to merge also into um, like mythological people, characters, and which raises a whole other question of to what degree are the real quote unquote people that we memorialize? Like yeah. how much of that is mythology? <laughs> actually, not not actually right. history. Right, right, right. I mean, and even the historical people that we uh, build monuments to, how much are those historical people mythologized? Are there, is there a third category that we can think of? So religious related things and historical people related things. Is there any third category of monuments we can think of? To a degree, just sort of celebration of, I want to say not necessarily nationalism, but a celebration of, of, just identity in general, mm, mm. because yeah. that's where, say, something like the Statue of Liberty comes into play, that it is not specifically a historical or a leader, I mean, it's specifically a leader monu- monument or a person, but a concept that is personified yes. by mm-hmm. the statue. Yes, yeah. 
Then there's also one of my favorite pieces of Americana is like, you know, when you're going on a road trip and you see a billboard by the side of the road saying world's biggest ball of yarn next exit. (laughs) And it's just like this random weird thing, right? Like that would count as a monument. That's technically (laughs) right. And, and people, humans are so great. Humans will just like make a weird thing for the sake of making a weird thing. And then sort of market like it. Car Carhenge. Carhenge. Yes, I was also thinking yes. of Carhenge. <laughs> thinking of Carhenge. Yeah. Or that big demon horse statue at the Denver airport. Have you seen yes. that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. fucked up and weird. <laughs> about that thing. <laughs> um, like, what is it for? I don't know. It's a demon horse. Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes the monument simply is just... Art yeah, just art. That mm-hmm. has been elevated. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's something that you could have a lot of fun with in a fantasy book. It's just these very minor, minor wonders of the world. Sort of like minor local gods, in a way. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking, too, like, when we think about about wonders, like, wonders can also be non-monumental things, but, um, but collections. Like, yeah. which of the Library of Alexandria, like, what was so wondrous about that was the fact that it was a giant collection of things and we do that a lot right like a lot of our museums and you know ranging from like the smithsonian Mm -hmm. all the way down to like you know the local thimble museum that has over three thousand thimbles like we get a collection together of something and that constitutes a wonder in a way yeah or at least a monument to that thing that concept yes when i was in amsterdam i went to the tulip museum uh, which was about six inches wide and about three feet long. <laughs> it was very narrow and very small, and it was great. And right next to it was the Cheese Museum, which was even smaller. Um, so, yeah, these these tiny little, very localized, specific uh, wonders of the world are, are fascinating to me, and I think that those could add a lot of flavor and, and interest to a setting. There is... <laughs> There is the Penis Museum in Iceland. Yes, I have a t-shirt from the Penis Museum in Iceland, actually. Lovely. <laughs> Let's move on to the next topic. God, what is it? So, <laughs> so, make it, so if you're going to make a monument, I mean, you know, like a penis museum or a statue, where do you, where do you put it? Like, wh- does location matter? <laughs> uh, Marshall and I are cracking up about this. <laughs> Uh, Rowena, Rowena, no, yes. size does not matter. It's how, know, size doesn't matter, but location use, might matter. It's how you use the monument, Rowena. <laughs> but you, you have to, you have to place it strategically. Yeah. Um, right? Anyway. Um, so, most I mean, I was, put in, but one in, thing like, that I was thinking about with, with location is that, oh God, this is even worse when it's a penis museum. I was, you want Jesus. it, you want to put it somewhere that people are going to see it. Yeah, I was going right? to say, yeah, you want it to be sort of a public performance, right? Because like it is, any monument is to some degree a public performance of this creative act or this nostalgic act or this collecting act if it's a museum of penises. <laughs> I'm sorry. So yeah, it has to be somewhere that's accessible to the general public and, and noticeable by the general public. Um, especially if it's going to be a tourist attraction that you're going to sort of lure people to. Uh, so a lot of the, the monuments that we see from history are placed in squares and, and 
the the village commons and so forth where it's going to be available to everybody and then and then i was thinking while i was thinking about this and then you have mount rushmore yeah like someone was like hey middle of nowhere let's put giant faces on a cliff like (laughs) i find mount rushmore so weird but it is kind of that that subversion of the put it where people can see it yeah you know the concept that it's like well or you don't and you make a thing out of it right right i mean mount rushmore (laughs) is also really fucked up because that mountain was um like sacred to the native american tribe that was was living there before yeah and so that's more just white bullshit having to do with mountains uh (laughs) god there's the episode (laughs) (laughs) yeah so now I'm just thinking about how weird that is that you would go to all that trouble to make this landmark where most people will not be able to easily see it. It was just this like one rich guy's wacky obsession of like I I need to like just put some faces on a mountain, wasn't it? I I'm not familiar with the history of it, but I'm pretty sure like it wasn't something that the U.S. government was like we need to commemorate these four presidents or anything like that. It was just this one, this one rich dude. guy who's like I'm gonna make this happen. Well, <laughs> well, and there's something to be said for that in your world building too, isn't there? That's true. There really is because <laughs> so many things exist because one crazy rich guy was like gonna make it happen. Gonna make it happen. <laughs> for example, that's a lot of the Renaissance was funded by weirdo rich guys deciding that they were gonna make it happen and. Being and just then trying to outflex each and ju- other. And then just try to outflex each other by hiring the latest cute little painter uh, who's got mad skills for painting weird boobs on clearly masculine bodies. Uh, <laughs> just calling out all of the Renaissance artists here. Yes, friends, you thought that you were safe with the Wonders and Monuments episode, <laughs> no. but no. oh no. Anyway, the no, Sistine no. Chapel... <laughs> Was the Sistine Cha- the Sistine Chapel was funded by the church, wasn't it? But that was funded by probably so. the Pope or at least a local cardinal who bought that. That I'm not sure. Let's about. ask Wikipedia. Keep talking. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of what what kind of artistic merit does your wonder have? I think that there's a that's a loaded question sometimes too because when you create something that is going to be representative of a culture in some way, like it's it's either feeding it's either pulling from what's considered like canon good art or it's feeding into what's going to be considered canon good art quote unquote or both. And so I think that's kind of an interesting place to play too. Like a lot of our museums and monuments and big stuff in the United States pull from um, antiquity and those Mm -hmm. designs that like are very Greco-Roman symmetry columns white like we did not make that up we we filched that because we thought that it was we thought that that looked like impressive we thought it looked like history yeah yeah Um, and then I was thinking about with this um just to kind of like subvert it the new African-American history museum that's part of the Smithsonian on the mall and so everything is like the white columned greco-roman and then you have this new building that is very distinctly and deliberately not that so kind of thinking about like yeah how do you use art and design to kind of subvert and challenge yeah cultural stuff yeah fascinating I have just found out uh, Michelangelo was commissioned by Pope Julius II to paint the ceiling so yeah just one guy deciding I'm gonna make it happen 
Um, clearly we need a big ass painting on the ceiling here. And I will give you enough money, Michelangelo, that you will stop whining that you don't want to do it and just fucking do it. Just do but, it. Yeah, just do it. But my arm's so tired, painting above my head. I'm a sculptor, not a painter. Shut up, Michelangelo. <laughs> just paint the ceiling. <laughs> Painters gotta eat, too. What's that incredibly dull movie? The Agony and the Ecstasy. I remember having to watch that for some reason in school. I have never seen it. Don't. Cool. But that's what it's about. If you ever want the crash course on how Hollywood talked about the Sistine Chapel, there there you go. I mean, it probably was agonizing to lie on your back and paint above your head for years and years. Uh, (laughs) I do not not envy that man. Speaking of the, the labor that goes into it. Yeah, yeah like we have one rich guy who commissions it who actually does the work most of the time because a lot of times like in with the pyramids it was slaves in alexandria it was probably slaves yeah in everything in washington dc mm-hmm. it was slaves. probably slaves like, yeah you know it's because like when you're making something that huge when you are like the one rich guy around who can afford to drop a load of cash on a big, big project, you're looking for ways to cut corners wherever you can. And so, yeah, you're gonna, if you're living in a culture where slave labor is available, you're going to use slave labor, which isn't great. Um, <laughs> which isn't, which isn't, we I think we can agree, here, great. By the way. We can, I think we can all agree it's not great. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. God. It's an understatement, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm being sarcastic. Um... <laughs> Well, and so many of the things, so many of the things that we consider, you know, great wonders or achievements, I mean, you have to recognize that it's built on the backs of usually a oppressed and marginalized large group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. Like we've kind of had the discussion and debate in the U.S. about um, plantation house museums. Oh, yeah. But one thing that we haven't talked about as much is that all those giant mansions in the north from like about 1870 through 1910 that are built and huge and gorgeous and we've preserved them because just the craftsmanship is blow you away amazing. Yeah, those people made their money on real shitty labor practices usually. Yep. So, you know, you have this beautiful, wonderful thing and it, you know, in some ways should be celebrated because someone put a lot of effort and art and these craftsmen were truly amazing craftsmen, but at the same time, like, you have to grapple with... That it was paid the money for that blood. paid for this was yes was paid for with you know people in the triangle shirtwaist factory plummeting to their death from fire like yeah. not great yeah not great or the the great wall of china where didn't they just literally build the wall of like didn't when people died on the job didn't they just like shove their bodies in the wall and keep building around them or was that something Probably. i read once i don't know I, I don't know, but it, I mean, sounds like something that could definitely have legit. happened. Like, it sounds like something that someone building a monument would probably do. Would do. Yeah. yeah. And you, they would be like, eh, they died. We got to keep moving. We, we got to bury <laughs> them gotta... somewhere and we're building this thing. So we might as well. We're building so. this thing anyway. Yeah. So let's just move on. So, yeah, like there's, I don't think that there is any monument where you can look at it and not have to sort of confront the problematic history of it and the fact that it was built by people who were suffering and who didn't have any other option other than to like submit their will to the person paying for this thing for probably reasons that they didn't care about or what they might have cared about it they might not have 
had the time or the economic resources to care about it because there were other things more important for them to care about, such as putting food on the table for their families. Setting aside the troubling and problematic aspects of history that we all have to confront every day, um, which is troubling and, and difficult and, and a process, to say the least, what, if you're building a, a fantasy world, like, what is the modern purpose for it? Like, how do, suppose that a monument was built 500 years ago, how are people in your world reacting to it now? Like, what sort of interactions can they have with it, other than, like, a tourist site? Though, not that that, I mean, you can use that, too. I mean, yeah. If like, you're going to have a concept of tourism just, in your world, just, that can be kind of a fun thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that thing. it's... Here's the thing about tourism, is that we think that it's such a modern invention, and it absolutely oh, was no. not. Like, Pompeii, before it was buried in volcanic ash, was absolutely, like, one of the top tourist destinations uh, in the Roman Empire. Because it's a gorgeous it's city right there on right the right there on the beach, coast. yeah, and like there were yeah, with I, a really pretty mountain behind it. Yeah, it's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I read something once how they kind of had this booklet or something that was published listing like restaurants in the city or or attractions or something. It was like, like that. the first Frommers. <laughs> yeah, like here's the Yelp reviews that we had to write out by hand. <laughs> Um, just to, to advertise, because people were advertising even back in the day, um, and trying to drum up business for their, for their local tourist attractions or for their local monuments or cool restaurants and things like that. Um, so I feel, I feel like the tourism industry is kind of the obvious answer, which I, which which is why I said besides tourism. Besides, yes, yes. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting how, um, often whatever it was built for originally is not really what we care about now. Um, like most people who go to visit um, great cathedrals are not there for mass, mm-hmm. right? Like they're there right. because they're interested in the architecture or the art or the history um, behind it. Though you still do have people who are going to mass. So I think it's kind of an interesting, like the the reason people are engaging evolves. Most people were not upset about Notre Dame burning because they had such a strong affinity for the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. but because they had a strong personal connection or they were just so, you know, overcome by the art or the architecture. Yeah. I think that it's really interesting to be one of the people, just as a totally opposite uh, idea to the tourism thing, I think it's an interesting idea to be one of the people living in the shadow of a monument like this, where it's a normal thing that you walk by every day. Like, what was it like to be one of the people living in Rhodes when the Colossus of Rhodes was there? Like, do you make jokes about it? Like, do teenagers go and, like, stand (laughs) under the skirt and go like, "Mm." Like, was that the makeout location? little tiny Colossuses and sell them, you know, on the docks? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You probably... um, have little boat tours where, where like, you find gullible tourists and you're like, hey, if you pay me $5, I will row you out to Between the Statue's Legs so you can see <laughs> the amazing wonder of the world. 
the other wonder of the world. <laughs> the wonder of but the wonder. The, and then like build up like the whole, it's like, it's true. If you go on a boat and go under the legs and then you kiss in the boat under the legs and you'll be together forever. Right. Because... <laughs> that's great shit right there, actually. <laughs> because that's the sort of thing that people who are near popular, tor- like they capitalize yeah. on it. And that's, you know, in, in big and small ways. And if you're just nearby, you're going to make the best out of that because... That's the way to make money. Yeah, or you're going to, like, alternatively, it's super annoying and you're just, like, fed up with all the tourists coming to look at it because, like, goddamn that thing, like, we hate it. <laughs> we locals just cannot stand that thing. We wish it would burn down already. <laughs> and, you know, I think that we talk about that a lot with um, man-made wonders. Yeah. Like, I, like, that Eiffel Tower there, you know, everyone's going it's to see the lines are crazy for it. Um, or, yeah, I'm going to make sure my business is close enough to this thing that people want to go see. Um, there's kind of a fun PBS show. Um, I think it's called Earth's Natural Wonders. Mm-hmm. But it's about how people interact with, like, natural wonders. And a lot of them are economic in some way or another. Yeah. So, like, you have, like, there's, the, I forget what the name of the bay is, but this, like, really unique bay that's one of the only places that, like, whale sharks live close to shore. And, like, so, of course, the, like, the tourist thought is, like, go see a whale shark. But for people who live there, it's, like, it's easy to fish around whale sharks. So we fish and we, we catch a lot more fish and make a lot more money. Mm. And so there can be this kind of, like, the way that we as outsiders see a wonder versus the way that someone who is kind of close to it sees it might be very different like the the wondrousness may be worn off in terms of like this mystical great thing but it's truly wonderful in other ways because they know it so well right right and may or may not economically gain from it but well it always comes back to economics (laughs) doesn't it (laughs) well like niagara falls like it's incredible and impressive but also you know you're going to Put a turbine in there and and we're going to sell postcards about it yeah and we'll have the easiest border to cross whatsoever <laughs> if you ever like if there because there's a bridge that literally goes across from the american side to the canadian side and at least when i did this in the 90s maybe it's not the case now it was the most casual international border you ever saw yeah because like you would walk across and there was like a guy in a Canadian uniform and you'd be like, hey, where are you born? And you're like, the U.S.? All right, have fun. Cool. <laughs> Let me just just sort of, I have also crossed Niagara Falls. Um, and you, he's like, sort of wave your passport in my general direction. And you're like, oh, great, cool. And he's like, have a nice day, eh? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just made <laughs> But it, like, it is, at least it was that casual. It was. At one point. Yeah. Maybe not as much anymore. But, so we have yeah. a couple minutes left on the episode. Should we do some uh, world building of monuments and wonders for our world? We probably should. We probably should. should. Now, do we do we it probably in should each of our that. three or do we, do we I don't know. revisit I'm kind of, the 13 families? I'm kind of getting bored of the doing each of our three ones. I like <laughs> it better when we do collaborative ones. Yes. My only other thought was we could we could give one another a monument, like mm. <laughs> like How like about, some sort of weird white elephant exchange here. That's that's <laughs> sort of what I was thinking too. How about this, Marshall? Tell me about a monument somewhere in the world where there is a statue of a giant turnip. A statue of a giant turnip. Yeah. Okay, so so turnips are they're more like a. I mean, they're they're more of like a, a 
cold weather harvest yeah, sort of thing. Like northern. So it would definitely be somewhere further north. So that might actually. Okay. Okay. Wait. Wait. All right. <laughs> so tell me. I'm going to go with the 13 families since they're supposed to be in sort of a northern colder area okay. anyway. So okay. in, in that area, each of the 13 families, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this down, has, has their totem. But instead of having like an animal totem, it is, it is a, a plant totem. It is a food that they grow totem. So each of them, that's their, that's their thing. So one of those 13 families, like the turnip, is their thing okay and so they're the turnip in, family they're the turnip family so in their in their big city whatever they're like because i guess there would be at least 13 cities for the or is it one city or I in their part of the city we have we have to write this shit separate. down at some point we have to write this yes. shit down tomorrow but anyway <laughs> in whatever area they specifically control since they are the turnip people they have a, a turnip statue okay. in the center of it. And that's which represents their family, which represents their 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 dynasty, okay. as it were. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. Sure. Who's next? All right. All right, so, so I, think, I, got, I should throw so, something to So Marshall, at. I think I think if we could do the round robin, yeah. you would throw something at me and then I'll throw something yeah. at that Alex. Works. All right. So Rowena, give me a give me a monument that is built for a purely practical purpose that then gets venerated for religious purposes. <laughs> That's a tricky one. That is a tricky, a tricky one. one. I have to give her a moment to think. Okay, so I'm going to give this to um, to the the little corner of the world that Alex has been creating. So you get okay. a gift from me tonight, Alex. Thank you. That there is along one of the major routes, there is a well. And it was really just dug as a like pragmatic, like here's a well. But over time, because people kept passing it just year after year, they would like leave things at the well as a kind of like safe offering sort of situation or just like a, hey, Bob was here, I left this thing. And so the well like around it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So you have to like go through like layers of people's souvenirs that they've built around it to get to the actual like water mm -hmm. that you pull out of the well and drink. Um, but it's kind of developed this significance as as a culture, like a religious shrine almost, that you leave something at the well mm. in order to ensure your safe continued passage as you, you move through that part of the world. Interesting. I like that. I think also, just to bounce off of that a little tiny bit, I think that they would probably eventually build like a stack of rocks next to it so you can like spot it, like sight it from a ways <laughs> away across the desert and just find it easier to navigate to. Um, so like a navigational marker as well as a, a practical sort of oasis to, to water yes. your, your people. Cool. I like that. Well done. Thank you. All right, Alex, I'm going to throw okay. something Hit me. at Hit me. I'm ready. you. So <laughs> she's fired up. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the world where someone has amassed not just to someone, over generations, okay. have amassed a collection of um, stuffed 
birds. Stuffed birds. Okay, well, don't you have a lot of birds in your archipelago, Rowena? I, I do, though I don't know if we stuff them. So it's... <laughs> so, okay, so stuffed birds implies that there's a reason to stuff the birds. And historically, a reason to stuff birds has been like a natural history museum. Uh, so that means that there has to be an interest in science of some sort. Um, you know what? Let's, let's give this to somewhere new. Uh, so I'm thinking along the east coast of the northern continent, uh, which is kind of northern-ish of Rowena's archipelago, if I'm picturing the map correctly. Um, so you're going to get a lot of seabirds there. You're going to get a lot of migratory birds traveling across the continent as the seasons change. And maybe they have just, uh, over the last hundred years or so, started um, developing a concept of fantasy Darwinism. Uh, and, uh, and are, are collecting the, the birds that migrate by and stuffing examples of them to, for a collection and, and study. And this is probably done by a rich person or the, if the king is sympathetic, like king, see, look, we just had an episode about choose versus presume for monarchies, uh, and politics. And there I am presuming that it's a king. Uh, the local ruling body, shall we say. Uh, if that person or people are sympathetic to the cause of science, they might help fund this if it's not just a rich, eccentric person's uh, weird, eccentric collection. Um, and I think that I do want that. So maybe there's an academy and they have a museum where they're, they have a theory of fantasy Darwinism and they're they're doing that. How's that sound? I love it. Fantastic. I love it. And maybe yes. maybe at this point we all know that they are collecting birds and so we send them birds as a thing that we do to be nice. Like, here's a dead bird. Oh, that's nice. It's for you. Yeah. We we found <laughs> we heard that you collect dead birds. We don't really know why. We put a bird in a box that it was some roadkill that we just found that we heard you wanted it. But that ties into the thing Shannon gave us last week last episode where yes like there was some culture that just like ships a menagerie is their yeah. way of saying hi saying hi <laughs> so cool. maybe maybe it's the same culture that the like just has a whole thing of like here's a bunch of animals maybe send us your dead birds <laughs> cool 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 that's fun that was a fun little game i liked that, that was one fun. it was more I collaborative yeah Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 4th. We're taking a break from discussing a particular topic to have a whole episode of deep dive world building about the 13 families civilization. Uh, we first mentioned it a few episodes back in the politics episode, if you want a refresher. Fun fact, we've asked on Twitter for our dear listeners to officially name that culture, and we've gotten some really cool suggestions, so stay tuned for the announcement of which one we picked. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. 
We are on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. I'm sure you've heard that bit of trivia about how the Great Wall of China is the only human structure visible from space. Sorry, that's a myth. I know, I was disappointed too. You can still see the lights of cities from space, though, and at least at night. I think that counts.